Hi, this is Amy. Before we start our episode today, I have two exciting announcements. First, in December, we will be wrapping up season one of Breaking Down Patriarchy, and I want to thank all of you listeners for your support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing our project with others. Thank you for writing positive reviews on Apple Podcasts. That really does help people find our project. We're reaching thousands of people every week, and I'm really overwhelmed with gratitude for everything I've learned in this process and for the comments that people are sharing with me about how much they're learning and how these books and these discussions are changing their lives for the better. Thank you so much. Second, we are already planning season two of Breaking Down Patriarchy, and we need your help. Instead of centering our episodes on essential texts next season, we're going to highlight people's stories. So if you would like a chance to be featured on the podcast, please email us at breakingdownpatriarchy at gmail.com, and we'll get you more information about how to apply. These will be talks that are similar to what you might hear on your favorite NPR show like The Moth or This American Life or a TED Talk. And we want as many diverse views as possible. So spread this message far and wide. We want people of all races and genders and socioeconomic situations, etc. So please add your voice to the conversation. And again, email us at breakingdownpatriarchy at gmail.com for more information about how to apply to be on the show. Thank you and enjoy today's episode. Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today we are going to discuss one of the most clearly written accessible texts on patriarchy and feminism that I've ever read. It's called Feminism is for Everybody, Passionate Politics, and it's by the iconic author, professor, cultural critic, and social activist, Bell Hooks. It was originally published in the year 2000, and for this episode, my reading partner and I read the new edition that came out in 2014. And speaking of my reading partner, I'd like to introduce Gina Haney. Hi, Gina. Hi, Amy. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Gina and I are friends. We met through our master's program at Stanford University, and we have taken several classes together, including one called International Women's Health and Human Rights um, that was offered by Anne Firth Murray. It was an amazing class. And another class we took together was the Civil Rights Movement in History and Memory from James Campbell at Stanford. So we've had lots of enriching discussions on actually on these topics throughout the years. And Gina, I know the kinds of compelling insights that you always bring to the text. So I'm really excited to talk about this with you today. So before we dive into the book, could you tell us a little more about yourself? Sure. I am a woman in my 50s. I was raised in rural Virginia. I cherish the diversity the world has to offer. I've spent many years living and working in the Middle East, Africa, and South America. In 2008, I founded Community Consortium and began with the government of Iraq, a stakeholder-driven management plan and World Heritage nomination for the site of Babylon. I'm also a mother of two girls, and because of this, I really appreciate the women who worked and are still working to establish a more inclusive and empathetic world like Bell Hooks. I received my undergraduate degree from Mary Washington University and a graduate degree from the University of Virginia. And as Amy said, I'm currently pursuing a second graduate degree at Stanford University. My research topic with this degree is understanding the power of place in a township in Zimbabwe. I plan to examine this place through the lens of the colonial government and the contemporary resident. Ultimately, I will understand these two narratives within the story that is being told to tourists about this place today. So Bell Hooks's work very much resonates with me. I've been a Girl Scout leader for seven years. I love to knit and preserve food from my garden. I have a great family and a lovely little lovely little dog named Charlotte. <laughs> That's great. Thanks, Gina. And I have been the lucky recipient of some of that food from your garden. And I will attest that you do great things. You you brought over figs one time with honey. And I love 
I love it when we get together for lunch because you always have amazing things from your garden. That's great. Well, thank you for sharing about yourself. I wish we had more time for you to tell all about the work that you've done with Babylon. And I remember other heritage sites that you've gone on site to determine whether they can qualify for UNESCO World Heritage Site status. And am, am I describing that right? What you do for yes. work, Gina? Yeah, it's yes. just fascinating stuff. So I wish we had time to talk about it, but I'm, I'm excited to hear the insights that you're going to bring to the book today. Before we talk about the book, actually, we usually on, on every episode, we talk about the author, just so we have context of who this person was that contributed this work that we're learning from. So Gina, if you would just tell us a little bit about Bell Hooks first, and then we'll start talking about the book. Okay. So we decided together to use the biography that Bell Hooks has chosen to represent herself on the Bell Hooks Institute website. And we do this for a number of reasons, which I think you'll understand after I read the the biography says, quote, Bell Hooks is an acclaimed intellectual, feminist theorist, cultural critic, artist, and writer. Hooks has authored over three dozen books and has published works that span several genres, including cultural criticism, personal memoirs, poetry collections, and children's books. Her writings cover topics of gender, race, class, spirituality, teaching, and the significance of media in contemporary culture. Born Gloria Jean Watkins in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, Bell Hooks adopted the pen name of her maternal great-grandmother, a woman known for speaking her mind. Hooks received her BA from Stanford University, her MA from the University of Wisconsin, and her PhD from the University of California, Santa Cruz. Her books include Ain't I a Woman, Black Women and Feminism, Rock My Soul, Black People and Self-Esteem, Teaching to Transgress, Education as the Practice of Freedom, Teaching Community, a Pedagogy of Hope, Where We Stand, Class Matters, We Real Cool, Black Men and Masculinity, and Feminism is for Everybody, Passionate Politics the text we are discussing today. Also interesting to note is that Bell Hooks does not capitalize her name on the website of the university where she teaches, Berea College in Kentucky. It explains this choice. Quote, she has chosen the lowercase pen name Bell Hooks based on the names of, of her mother and grandmother. To emphasize the importance of the substance of her writing, as opposed to who she is. So in this spirit, we're going to keep her biography short and instead spend the whole episode focusing on her work because we think that's what she would want out of this. Maybe she'll be listening at some point. Um, <laughs> so take it away, Amy. Okay, awesome. Yeah, and I was really grateful, Gina, you were uh, generous to say that this is what we decided together, which we did, but it was actually your idea, Gina, when I was saying that we should write, you know, more a ro more robust biography of her, which is what we've done on previous episodes and you and Gina, you pointed out and said she doesn't really seem like the kind of person who would want a long biography written about her and then sure enough when we looked on the institute website, it's pretty clear that that you were really in tune with that. So I'm really grateful that you pointed that out to honor her kind of her wishes and, and what vibes she would want on a pod podcast episode about her. So yeah, let's dive into the book just for an orientation in case you don't own the book, listeners who don't own it. It's this book is quite it's a slim little volume. It's about 100 pages long. It's divided into 19 chapters plus a preface and an introduction in this most recent edition. So each chapter is pretty short. It's a really great book to just stick in your bag and read when you have little snippets of time between meetings or waiting to pick up kids in the pickup line or it, it's just very digestible and just packed with really mind-blowing, I felt for me, like really, really salient insights. So we've selected just a few chapters to highlight, and we'll share just a couple of main points from each of the chapters. So we're going to start with some important points from the very first thing with the introduction. So Gina, I think you're going to start us off there in the intro. Yes, of course. 
The introduction is entitled Come Closer to Feminism. And I just wanted to point out, although this podcast is devoted to breaking down the patriarchy, the questions posed by Hooks stem from the opposite and perhaps the more complex end of the spectrum. Her main question is, how do we build a feminist movement? And we're still building it, I think. And she would, I think, agree with this as well. From her perspective, to construct a truly feminist movement, one must move out of the halls of academia and patriarchy to fully and truly engage the larger collective. That is both men and women, girls and boys around the world. Very important around the world. Hooks offers her definition of feminism as, quote, a movement to end sexism, sexist exploitation, and oppression, end quote. She envisions the building of the movement as twofold. One, by recognizing our participation in perpetuating sexism, and two, by striving to replace it with feminist thoughts and action. Any thoughts on this definition of feminism, Amy? Yeah, I th- I think that's a great quote to pull out from from the introduction. And yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of your question about like, you know, this, this project, this podcast project is breaking down patriarchy. I think her project is always like very, it seems very practical to me that she's building a feminist movement because it's one thing to theorize about patriarchy and to maybe identify the problems in society, but she is really focused on, okay, fine, that exists. So how, how do we dismantle things? And it's by creating what she calls feminist movement. And here's how everybody needs to be involved. And so I think it's, it's just a practical approach that here's what we're going to do together as women. Would you agree with that assessment? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great, a great point to bring out from the intro. One more, one thing from the intro that I loved too, is it's a really short quote. She says, imagine living in a world where there is no domination, where females and males are not alike or even always equal, but where a vision of mutuality is the ethos shaping our interaction. I love that vision. And I would say one problem that I see in my life when I've had conversations is that a lot of uh, defenders of patriarchy who I know would actually agree with bell hooks with that statement. I constantly hear men and women say that like, yeah, that of course men shouldn't dominate women, but there already isn't domination. So they too talk about how there shouldn't be male violence. And they say that aside from situations of like terrible, violent oppression, the world already is equitable and women aren't oppressed. And so they think that Hooks's vision of mutuality is the same as complementarianism, where males have certain traits and roles and females have other traits and roles. But where they differ from Hooks is that in patriarchy, men are the ones who are defining and dictating the terms of that vision of mutuality. And I think, you know, what Hooks is saying is that men and women are at the table together determining what the world should look like. So that was my thought. I loved her vision. There's no domination and men and women don't always have to be alike, but mutuality is the ethos shaping our interaction, not one deciding the rules for the other. (laughs) Great insight, Amy. Okay, so I am going to take chapter one and then I believe chapter three And then Gina, you'll take a couple of chapters and kind of take the lead on those chapters. So we'll just kind of switch off. I chose chapter one. It's titled Feminist Politics, Where We Stand. So one thing that was really valuable to me about this book is that Hooks was integrally involved in the women's liberation movement in the 1970s. And she references her work in that movement a lot throughout the book. And this was really helpful for me because I had never studied second wave feminism before starting this podcast. And actually, I'm currently writing my master's thesis on one aspect of second wave feminism, partly because it's something I've always wanted to learn more about. Um, A lot of what I've learned about the 1970s women's movement has come from 
or what I've heard, I guess, has come from people who are critics of that movement. And so hearing from someone who was involved in it and can talk about the amazing contributions that it made, but then also some of the problems within it from her own perspective was really useful to me. So I have three quotes that I want to share from the chapter. And the first quote is kind of referencing the, the point of view of feminists during, you know, the 1960s and 70s with the second wave of feminism. So here's, here's the quote. She says, quote, utopian visions of sisterhood based solely on the awareness of the reality that all women were in some way victimized by male domination were disrupted by discussions of class and race. We could only become sisters in struggle by confronting the ways women through sex, class, and race dominated and exploited other women and created a political platform that would address these differences. So one thing that I thought of when I when I read that part of the chapter was a moment for me that was really eye-opening when I kind of discovered, <laughs> like I, I, I guess I had previously had a sense of women's sisterhood that we are all in this together regardless of race, but I hadn't had as much an awareness as I wish I had had about the intersections of different women's identities. And anyway, I, I watched this TED talk by Michael Kimmel. It's titled, Why Gender Equality is Good for Everyone, Men Included. And he shares the story about when he was a grad student in the 1970s, and he was in um, like a feminist book club, I think, at his university. And he was in a group with several women, some black and some white, I believe. And he said he just overheard this conversation. He was present during this conversation where a black woman and a white woman were talking about feminism and the white woman was expressing, you know, solidarity or intending, I suppose, to, to express solidarity. And she said something like, yeah, we're all, we're all just women. Kind of, I don't see color was the, was the, um, thrust of her comment and saying, I don't really see color. We're all just women together. And the black friend of hers said to her, she said, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? And the white woman said, I see a woman. And, and her friend said, see, yeah, that's the difference. Cause when I look in the mirror, I see a black woman. And, and Michael Kimmel said like, he's like, Oh my gosh, I just realized. And he said, I had never he himself, he said, I had never realized, I didn't realize that I even had a race or a gender. I was just like the neutral person. And he realized his privilege. And he said, privilege is invisible to those who have it. And to me that like, I watched that TED talk, I think two more times to just try to internalize that concept. And I think that's what Hooks is talking about in this quote, just that there was this, I think, really well-intentioned feeling among women that was like, oh, kind of we're all the same, we're all women. And and white women's blind spot was then and still is that it's not the same for all women. It's not. It, I mean, what, this, this Black woman who, who did such a favor for her friend by pointing this out, that when she looked in the mirror, she didn't have the luxury of just seeing a woman. She was aware of her race every day of her life because of the systemic injustices that existed on that plane of race. Anyway, that was one thing that came to mind to me that again, just reminded me how important it is to be aware of the different identities that, that people experience as they walk around in their bodies every day and the different life experience they have because of that. The next quote that I wanted to share from that chapter is, Oh, or Gina, did you want to say something about that? Well, I just Please. wanted to say that that's a great example. And that really harkens to the point that Hooks makes about recognizing our complicity in the situation, not mm -hmm. being able to recognize, you know, our privilege or, or unconscious bias and pulling ourselves out of that comfort zone, I guess, and recognizing our, you know, whiteness and privilege and etc. Um, kind of, you know, moves us to recognizing the complicity that we have in perpetuating sexism. And I think that is an example, a great example. And um, hopefully we'll, we can all strive to do that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely agree. And it's a 
for me at least, it's humbling to me how much it's a process of learning and just constantly every book I read or everything I, every, you know, person I talk to or, or listen to on the radio, I think like, oh my gosh, how do I not know that yet? Or how am I still learning this? But I mean, I guess all of us are in process and it's just important to just keep learning, learning these things and, and always be aware that we have blind spots and to try to figure out what they are and, and address them. Right. I guess that's all we can do is just keep learning and keep trying. So, and to your, your point actually leads really well into the next point I wanted to make from the chapter um, Hooks's point that I wanted to highlight. So the next thing that I wanted to talk about is she says, she talks about different approaches that were being taken specifically in the 1970s, though I would say it's probably just the same within feminism today the reformist feminism approach versus the radical feminism approach. And her quote is this, she says, most women, especially privileged white women, ceased even to consider revolutionary feminist visions once they began to gain economic power within the existing social structure. Reformist feminists were eager to silence radical feminism. Reformist feminism became their route to class mobility. They could break free of male domination in the workforce and be more self-determining in their lifestyles. While sexism did not end, they could maximize their freedom within the existing system, and they could count on there being a lower class of exploited, subordinated women to do the dirty work they were refusing to do. Oh man, that that packs a punch, I feel like, and is so true. To me, well, one thing I thought of, I did not read Ivanka Trump's book, but I did I did read that she came out with a book a couple of years ago where she talks about like, it's easy to, re- I mean, at least this was my impression of the, the review, like, of course, women can have it all. You can work and have a family and, and, and she just takes for granted that like, all you need is like basically hired help and completely ignoring what the lives of those women are like that's that's what i thought of when i read this quote that these women it, you know in the in during the 20th century white women gained a lot of privileges they hadn't have, had before but in order to be able to work in order to be able to have it all they just were completely blind to the plight of the women that they had to employ to be their nannies and their housekeepers and their yard workers and i think it's so important that hooks points this out. And it it reminds me of prior episodes where we've talked about like men breaking out of oppressive systems like serfdom, right? In the middle ages or like in the enlightenment and writing the declaration of independence or the declaration of the rights of man in France. And, and they're so excited that they get through the door that, that has been blocked to them, but they completely forget to look behind them to see like, Oh, we're not holding it open for women. We're not holding it open for enslaved people. They just like walk through the door like, yay, we're free and have no peripheral vision for who's being kept out and not able to walk through the door. So I think that's what Hooks is saying here is that if you're going to have, you know, better opportunities, look around you and make sure you're not exploiting somebody else or leaving somebody else out of it. So anything to add there, Gina? Well, that just goes right to the point of the title of this book, Feminism is for Everyone, no matter Mm. what your gender, what your race, what your class is, where you live, it's for everyone. Uh, Mm -hmm. What your sexual orientation is, it just, you know, that should not even come into play. And that is something that she reinforces again and again in different chapters of this book. So, yes, absolutely. So. That is so interesting. Okay, so that's perfect. Again, just the segue into my last point that I want to share from this chapter is this is an interesting one, a tricky one. I'm just going to read the quote and then you'll see why I'm saying that it's kind of tricky. She says, lifestyle feminism ushered in the notion that there could be as many versions of feminism as there were women. Suddenly, the politics was being slowly removed from feminism And the assumption prevailed that no matter what a woman's politics, be she conservative or liberal, she too could fit feminism into her existing lifestyle. Obviously, this way of thinking has made feminism more acceptable because its underlying assumption is that women can be feminists 
without fundamentally challenging and changing themselves or the culture. For example, let's take the issue of abortion. This is still Hooks talking. She says, if feminism is a movement to end sexist oppression and depriving females of reproductive rights is a form of sexist oppression, then one cannot be anti-choice and be feminist. A woman can insist she would never choose to have an abortion while affirming her support of the right of women to choose and still be an advocate of feminist politics. She cannot be anti-abortion and an advocate of feminism. So that's why I I say it's tricky because on one hand, she's saying feminism is for everybody, but she does have a definition of what that feminism means. And she says that, I mean, at least this is my interpretation, that, that that feminism is for everybody. But you can't just say, oh, I'm a feminist, but I believe this, this, and this. And this is tricky for me. You know this, Gina, because I, so in our international women's health and human rights class, I took on a big project of reproduction rights and abortion. And I actually, I talk, I talked about this on a previous episode on our episode of on Roe versus Wade. So I'm not going to do that now, but I will say I do understand. And I have come to understand recently Hooks's view that you can't really be a feminist if you deprive if you are in favor of depriving women the right to choose what to do with their own reproductive life, with their body, with their family. And I, I do actually understand that now. But I have to say, actually, just in the car this morning, Gina, on my way back to, um, home after dropping my kids off at school, I heard a young woman being interviewed on NPR who was praising Amy Coney Barrett as the ultimate feminist. And I was like, oh, bell hooks would disagree with you because this this young woman was a pro-life activist and she called herself a feminist. I'm like, oh, it's tricky. So I I feel I guess how I would summarize my feelings are I I feel wary of labels and and when gatekeepers stand at the gate and say if you don't meet these definitions then you can't have the label of feminist and i guess i feel wary about that because i i have muslim friends who wear the hijab and they call themselves feminists and i have heard people say you cannot be a feminist and wear you know a headscarf because that's you know a symbol of patriarchal oppression and I I just know I think of the other thing I was thinking of was if you've seen the the series Unorthodox on Netflix about um very very cons- conservative Judaism I think of Estee Shapiro that character when she's horrified at the thought of abortion and and she's having like this feminist awakening and it's going to be a long process for her to like figure out what her feminist awakening is going to mean for her and and it just reminds me of my own conservative community that i know best and my own my own experience i know people who have promised obedience to their husbands when they got married and they're having feminist awakenings and to say as they're waking up and being like oh oh my gosh like i think i'm I think this system that I've bought into is has made me really sad and it's limited my choices and I need and they want to enter this path of discovery if someone is there saying to them oh no you cannot call yourself a feminist and be pro life it it makes me nervous that then they wouldn't feel welcomed onto a path of discovery that they actually really need in their lives and that they then might might come to a different awareness or a different opinion on abortion. It took me until I was, you know, 42 and feeling really safe in our class to say, you know what, I, I've been looking at women's rights and looking at patriarchy long enough in my life for like a couple decades to confront this very, very tender, very, very emotional topic of abortion and I'm I'm ready to do that now. And I personally am grateful that I didn't have anybody earlier in my life saying you can't be a feminist and if you think that I think it would have hindered my ability to make progress and to learn. And so I guess that was my thought on that. Um I don't know. I think I think it's not 
to me, it's not as tricky as it is to you, but I, I don't have a lot of this background. So anyway, mm-hmm. maybe we could, should move on because I, you know. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No problem. It is tricky. And as I said, I heard about it right on the radio this morning. This conversation yeah. is really current. So I'll share. So the next chapter it, it was one I was going to take the lead on too. I'll go quickly through it. It's chapter three, and she says, sisterhood is still powerful. And I want to share just a couple of quotes from that chapter. So she says, attending an all-women's college for a year before I transferred to Stanford University, I knew from firsthand experience the difference in female self-esteem and self-assertion in same-sex classrooms versus those where males were present. At Stanford, males ruled the day in every classroom. Females spoke less, took less initiative, and often when they spoke, you could hardly hear what they were saying. Their voices lacked strength and confidence. And to make matters worse, we were told time and time again by male professors that we were not as intelligent as the males, that we could not be great thinkers, writers, and so on. These attitudes shocked me since I had come from an all-female environment where our intellectual worth and value was constantly affirmed by the standard of academic excellence our mostly female professors set for us and themselves. So I, first of all, I just want to say how thankful I am that so much has changed because that is not the feeling that I've had at Stanford at all and just in general. But I also wanted to ask you, Gina, because I know that your girls attended an all-girls middle school, right? Yes, both of my girls attended all-girls middle schools, and I could I, I could actually see that transformation where they weren't so outspoken when they were in a a mixed gender classroom and then no holes barred for them in an all um, single gender classroom. And that was for me really, really interesting to see and to see they're still in the process of that. And they really advocate for themselves outside of school and in high school. It's very dramatic shift, I think, because I think they were in single gender classrooms. I also went to a single gender high school and can Hmm. say from personal experience that I um, can attest to the power of sisterhood. Yeah. Hmm. And you felt like it made you more confident coming out of those like really vulnerable years? Yeah, I think it did. I mean, I think for me personally, I missed I think the middle school years are kind of crucial for this. Mm-hmm. So I think I kind of missed the boat. But yeah, it definitely affected me. And um, maybe it made me more stubborn in a way or I don't know. It, yeah, it no, it's not such a sure. bad thing. <laughs> that's great. That's great. That's what we want for our daughter. So that's really thought provoking to think about if that's an option where where we live to think about maybe infusing girls with that strength, especially at that really critical age. So, okay. I have, I think I'm just going to share one more thought from this chapter so that we can move on to your chapters, Gina. One more quote that I have from this chapter is she says, first and foremost, feminist movement urged females to no longer see ourselves and our bodies as the property of men to demand control of our sexuality effective birth control and reproductive rights, an end to rape and sexual harassment, we needed to stand in solidarity. In order for women to change job discrimination, we needed to lobby as a group to change public policy. Challenging and changing female sexist thinking was the first step towards creating the powerful sisterhood that would ultimately rock our nation. So this was published before the Me Too movement. And I wish we had, you know, some sort of afterword that was written recently by Bell Hooks about her response to the Me Too movement, because that's what this seems to kind of be a precursor to, right? Or rather, I guess I would say that the Me Too movement is just a culmination of all of these things that Bell Hooks is saying need to happen. So that's that must have just been thrilling for her, right? It was like the fulfillment of this almost um, prophecy that she was making, that this is what would ultimately rock the nation is women standing together. The other thing I thought of that I just keep thinking about, I brought it up in our class a lot, Gina, so you might remember, but I was always talking about bonobos, these primates that I had just, they're, they're the most genetically similar to human beings. And I had read this article, this scientific article in some magazine, I don't even remember where I read it, but 
it was talking about how bonobos actually are matriarchal and they are, I think, the only primates that are known to be matriarchal. And the mothers have higher social status and social power. The males have to like get permission from the older females for permission for food and to mate and stuff. And and as I was reading, I thought, well, it, in that species, I would guess that the females are probably bigger than the males. Uh, bigger and stronger, right? Physically, but actually they're not. And I thought, well, then how do they do that? Like, how do they fight the males? And proportionally, bonobos are just the same as humans. Females are proportionally just as much smaller and weaker as as human males and females are. The difference is that the the female bonobos band together. So if males are getting aggressive with a female, then a band, a group of females will come over all together and threaten that male. They'll encircle him and even bite and hit him and tell him to, to leave. <laughs> like they'll, they will gang up on him and he'll run away. And they have figured out how to work together. And when I read about those bonobos, it reminded me of the photographs of of suffragettes, like linking arms and of the the women's movement too, of women marching through the streets, linking arms. It reminded me of the Liberian women in the early 2000s, bringing to end a bloody civil war with a peaceful protest that they called the mass action for peace. It was just a bunch of women overpowering a smaller group of men, but men who were bigger and stronger and had weapons but the women figured out how to work together and they were able to change their society. So I, that's, that was what I thought about when I, when I read Hooks's assessment that in order to end all of these terrible things like rape and sexual harassment, we need to stand in solidarity and do it together with our arms linked. So I think that's all I'm going to share for chapter three, and then we'll move on to chapter eight, which you're going to take the lead on Gina. Okay. And before we do that, I just wanted to add that, you know, don't forget the Black Lives Matter movement, too. I think that really um, affects the feminist movement in a positive way Mm -hmm. and, you know, goes back again to what Hooks is saying. Let's think about class. Let's think about race. It's very important. And the next chapter is on global feminism. And I think that the next chapter we will look at, which is chapter eight. And I think that that's important to think about air movement globally don't keep the blinders on so um again in chapter eight hooks tackles the issue of global feminism i found this examination to differ for me personally from other feminist writings i have read hopefully someone else out there and i know you'll expand your geographical focus to include other parts of the world later in the podcast so hopefully someone else you will find is also um, dealing with global feminism. Um, Mm -hmm. Hooks sees this, the worldwide female commitment to Western imperialism and trans transnational capitalism is detrimental to the broader feminist movement, which is led by, for the most part by white Western women. So that's a lot to tackle. She's saying that, you know, women around the world really kind of gravitate to this Western imperialism kind of history. Their notions of feminism are are, are still under this kind of rubric of of the West. And, you know, white Western women kind of are leading the movement. So we have to kind of break, again, break this down. Maybe we are breaking it down. So according to Hooks, quote, when unenlightened individual feminist thinkers addressed global issues of gender exploitation and oppression, they did so from the perspective of neocolonialism, end quote. So again, to kind of harken back historically, when feminism kind of got off and running, gender exploitation and sexism really kind of still operated under this umbrella of neocolonialism. And I know neocolonialism, imperialism, transnational capitalism are big, heavy words, academic words. And we kind of want to break free of that too. But I'm hoping that you follow me with this. 
She is actually, could you give, I was just going to say, Gina, for listeners, maybe who haven't done much reading about this and, and wouldn't have a definite, wouldn't really quite wrap their heads around what those words mean. Is there a quick definition of what, what she's referring to when she says neocolonialism and decolonizing feminist thinking? What's she referring to? Well, I think she's, again, referring to the kind of historical sense of oppression that the strong kind of overpowers the weak. Mm -hmm. Um, The white overpower the non-white. You think of any kind of colonial situation or imperial situation. Settlers like the British the state and kind yeah. of oppressing the native peoples who already who are already here and don't really have a voice or no voice that is recognized by them. Think of colonial sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, I don't want to define this for you because I feel like my definition in itself will bring a lot of baggage. So I'm hoping that you can think this way. Mm-hmm. Hooks asserts that we as Western women continue to struggle to decolonize feminist thinking and practice. That's kind of what I'm doing here. We have to, again, step out of our box and and see us as implicit in this kind of sexism because we are operating. I mean, it's, you know, I'm not saying we're at fault here. We are kind of, it's kind of unconscious in my way of looking at it, I guess. Because we have been raised in in kind of a colonial historical narrative, and we have to break out of that and recognize that we can break out of that, and we need to kind of uh, reshape our feminist thinking and practice. A decolonized feminist perspective would examine how sexist practices are linked globally. An example, and this is Hook's example. She associates female genital mutilation with life-threatening eating disorders. So things that we in our country really see as problematic, which are problematic, and things that we have a very distant idea with as being problematic, like genital mutilation. Um, So life-threatening eating disorders or cosmetic surgery to emphasize, quote, the sexism, the misogyny, end quote, underlying global and local sexism. So this is happening across the globe in different forms. Until challenged, Hooks emphasizes, quote, the tone of global feminism in the West will continue to be set by those with the greatest class power who hold old bias, end quote. So in other words, feminism is, as we know it, is challenged by issues issues of class, race, and inequity. I'll go on to say we as white, in this podcast, we as white, two white Western women are kind of complicit in all of this. So we, I'm hoping, hoping that, or at least for me, this text by Hooks really kind of lays that bare and says to me, okay, you need to work harder to understand your role within feminism. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts, Amy? Yeah, definitely. Those are such great, such great points. I'm just, um, one thing that I thought of when you read this quote again, where you talked about how she talks about female genital mutilation, which as you said, is in my view, just an egregious violation of human rights. But she talks about how important it is to decolonize our thinking. One thing that I, when you read that quote, I thought, yes, that's that's true. It reminded me of, you know, Michel de Montaigne when he wrote that essay. Um, so this was a French thinker in the 16th century, I think. And he was really calling out people's hypocrisy by saying, you know, we have, we think of the um, native peoples of these other countries as being barbaric, but we here in Europe do all of these terrible tortures and we um, we're burning people at the stake because of their different religious beliefs. And he, and he, he's, I, I think it was one of the first written mental exercises of 
breaking down that hypocrisy in seeing somebody else's else's culture as barbaric without examining our own. And that's what I thought of when I when I heard you say that again, that Hooks is saying that perhaps Westerners are very quick to point out how terrible female mut- genital mutilation is. And again, in my view, it is terrible, but we're, we're very slow to recognize our own sickness, our own misogynistic practices that cause our girl, our daughters to starve themselves or people who have cosmetic surgery because they feel like they have to alter their bodies in order to be, to conform to these standards. And, and she's saying like, I think we need to take a good hard look at ourselves and our own harmful practices against women rather than being so quick to point out what, you know, the harmful practices in other countries. Is that in line with Yes, exactly with you think right. what, yeah, that's it. You said it much clearer than I did, but yes. Oh no, not at all. It's it was just you you brought up that new thought in in me. I thought, "Oh yeah, it's it's just it's not that it's not important to look at it all over the world, but we need to not be hypocrites about it." Yeah, um, we need to not be so um, critical of the outside world. We need to be more right. self-critical of, you know, what's happening here or other, you know, mm-hmm. nearby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we have a lot of, I my point of view is we have a lot of introspection to do. Yeah, right, right. That's, and that's all, I mean, that's where we should all be starting anyway, right? Is in our own lives, our own families, our own communities, our own country. There's just a lot of work to do. Okay. So you have the next chapter too, Gina, right? That on race and gender. Okay, yes. I believe, another heavy, for me, a heavy chapter, mm-hmm. but important chapter. So the movement from the civil rights struggle into female liberation, which you know well, Amy, was a logical transition for some women. Yet the very foundation of the civil rights movement, which was race, was kind of lost in that transition. So from the perspective of Hooks, which is a quote, let's start here, they, white women, were following in the footsteps of their abolitionist ancestors. But when faced with the possibility that black males might gain the right to vote, before white women, they chose to unite under the umbrella of white supremacy. White women entering the movement of female liberation, therefore, eliminated race from the picture. End quote. This statement harkens back to points made in Chapter 8 about how feminism today is still working to decolonize. We're still working to recognize all races, all classes, all sexual orientations. I could go on and on, but we need to be more inclusive. That's the bottom line, I think. Hooks, with her years of experience, ends this chapter with a note of hope, which is great, and perhaps a call to action. She states, quote, I witnessed the revolution in consciousness that occurred as individual women began to break free of denial to break free of white supremacist thinking. These awesome changes restore my faith in feminist movement and strengthen the solidarity I feel towards all women, end quote. So again, as individual women kind of struggling with this, we need to be introspective, break free of colonial, maybe maybe I'll use the term white supremacist, because she used it thinking. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, again, as Amy said, that any, that individually, you know, kind of looking inward and seeing how I can change or I can think differently is the way that we kind of move towards restoring the feminist movement or the idea of taking down sexism. Do you have any thoughts on this, Amy? Nope. I think you covered it, Gina. That was a really excellent analysis of that chapter. Okay. So the next chapter we wanted to talk about is chapter 12 and it's titled Feminist Masculinity. And I'll start just with Hooks's quote. She says, when contemporary feminist movement first began, there was a fierce anti-male faction. Individual heterosexual women came to the movement from relationships where men were cruel, unkind, violent, unfaithful. 
Many of these men were radical thinkers who participated in movements for social justice, speaking out on behalf of the workers, the poor, speaking out on racial justice. But when it came to the issue of gender, they were as sexist as their conservative cohorts. Individual women came from these relationships angry, and they used that anger as a catalyst for women's liberation. As the movement progressed, as feminist thinking advanced, enlightened feminist activists saw that men were not the problem, that the problem was patriarchy, sexism, and male domination. It was difficult to face the reality that the problem did not just lie with men. Facing that reality required more complex theorizing. It required acknowledging the role women play in maintaining and perpetuating sexism. I know people who talk about the 1970s women's lib movement in a really critical way and talk about like kind of that stereotype of the man hating feminist, right? And that's kind of the way they see the 70s second wave of feminism. And it it was actually really helpful to me to read that Hooks talks about it that way and says, yeah, that actually did exist. There were a lot of women saying, we do hate men. Men are the problem. Um, And I have read some pretty radical feminist writings from the time where I think like, okay, that's where that stereotype comes from. And for Hooks to say that there was kind of a an evolution that happened in thinking where it it needed to become more nuanced. And Hooks is very, very, like you said earlier, Gina, inclusive. She's not anti-man. She's not anti-male. She's, she wants to recruit everybody in this work of, of greater equity. And so I just appreciated her pointing that out. It points out women's complicity in the problem. And it also says, no, it's not like men are terrible. Nobody living, I've pointed this out many times on different episodes, nobody alive right now is responsible as the architect of this system. It happened gradually. It happened a long time ago. So yes, we're all complicit in it. We're born into it, like you just pointed out, and we need to do work to to dismantle it. But nobody alive right now is responsible for creating it in the way that it currently is. Though we can be responsible for perpetuating it if we're not careful. Anyway, she goes on, the, the main point of this next chapter after she talks about like, okay, men are not evil and men are not the problem. So then she says, basically to summarize, she says that as in many movements, it's a lot easier to point out the problem than to come up with a solution. And so she says, okay, so once we know that the problem isn't like men in general, that we see that the problem is patriarchy, she says, so what do we offer men instead? Um, She says, quote, to a grave extent, feminist movement failed to attract a large body of females and males because our theory did not effectively address the issue of not just what males might do to be anti-sexist, but also what an alternative masculinity might look like. How can you become what you cannot imagine? And that vision has yet to be made fully clear by feminist thinkers, male or female. So she talks about how boys need healthy self-esteem. They need love. She says that a wise and loving feminist politics can be a voice in helping create a new masculinity for boys and men. She says, patriarchy will not heal them. If that were so, they would all be well. And as we know, boys and men in many ways are not well. They are struggling and suffering in a a patriarchy that makes boys feel like they can't have emotions and can't cry and that they have all of the burden of of you know protecting and providing and being strong on their own shoulders and it's not healthy for them either. So a couple things I would recommend if listeners are interested in thinking about new definitions of masculinity would be Justin Baldoni. He's a fantastic just human being. He's an actor that I got to know on the show Jane the Virgin, which is so great. <laughs> he did a TED Talk called Why I'm Done Trying to Be Man Enough. And that TED Talk is awesome. So I know it's it is part of the public conversation right now. Prominent men talking about how they need to reinvent what boyhood and manhood means also that doesn't involve domination and doesn't involve being emotionally closed off. So I thought that was a really important point that Hooks makes as well in chapter 12. Okay. Well, I think you have the last chapter that we're going to cover, which is chapter 19. Is that right? Yes, that's it. And this chapter is the concluding chapter and it's about visionary feminism. And it really gets to the heart 
of what we've been talking about, which is feminism is for everyone. And this chapter makes the case for moving beyond the equal rights agenda to embrace basic human issues and needs, such as literacy, which is an example highlighted by Hooks, and inclusive of all women, especially those of marginalized groups, and men, I would add, too. A broad-based feminist movement would not only be inclusive, but accessible, and accessible through oral tradition, language, children's books, as Bell Hooks has produced in her career, and even books on tape, on apps. And these are just a few examples given by Hooks herself in this book, in this chapter. Such inclusion and accessibility allows for creative strategies for feminist change. And that really is what I think she's advocating for. Let's work out of the box. Visionary feminism from the standpoint of gender, race, and class allows us to quote Hooks, accurately understand our position within the imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy. It's a, bit, a lot of words there, but really, again, to be <laughs> introspective and understand that we are complicit. What's their position? How do I work around that? How do I begin to, to refashion that into the visionary feminist way of looking at things? Gender is not the only role determining the status. We must be more inclusive. So let's move beyond this whole gender focus and think about being inclusive and including everyone. Renewal of the feminist movement is paramount to hooks in this book. We've said this over and over again. Inclusivity and accessibility remain at the foundation. Quote to, um, this is hooks. To ensure the continued relevance of feminist movement in our lives, visionary feminist theory must con constantly be made and remade so that it is addressing us where we live in air present, end quote. So again, this is um, the focus of Hooks. And in a nutshell, you know, this is what we've Amy and I have come to understand Hooks and Feminism is for Everyone. This book was first published 20 years ago. It is both introspective and outward-looking. It's full of condemnation and hope, I think. Mm -hmm. It's a look backward to create a path forward. We're still in the process of doing that. This is not a done deal. It's a plan for rebuilding amidst a breaking down. So it's all of that, but we have a lot of work to do. Amy? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I I just would completely agree with your those final thoughts. I that was really insightful. One book title that I was familiar with that I associated with Bill Hooks was her book called All About Love. And I really had a sense too that she is a person who, while she's advocating for change, and in order to do that, you do have to point out problems and you do have to point out mistakes that people have made. Her overriding feeling is like courageous love. I felt like she does have this vision of how human beings can be and need to be better to each other and that we should do it in a spirit of brotherhood and sisterhood and and love. And I really appreciated that feeling that permeated the book too. Um, so I learned so much from Hooks. This is a book that I will give to people and continue to think about. So I, I was so glad I read it and so grateful to you, Gina, for being willing to read it and spend the time having this conversation. So thanks so much for being here today. You're welcome. Thank you. On our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be reading Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay, published in 2014. I first heard of Roxane Gay when I watched her TED Talk, Confessions of a Bad Feminist. I watched it several years ago, and I absolutely loved it. Her book, Bad Feminist, is a collection of essays, and she is a brilliant thinker. She's a brilliant author and public intellectual. I thought the book was relatable and at the same time eye-opening, and it was heartbreaking in parts and hilarious in parts, and she takes on 
really um, highly academic topics as well as popular culture. And I really highly recommend reading or listening to this one. It's really a classic that I think is very, very broadly relatable and broadly enjoyable to a large audience. So check out Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay and then join us for the conversation next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Patriarchy.